Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, you are a God of great patience and mercy. You created a perfect world, and this creation was a picture of your character. It was not only beautiful, but it was also good. As the benevolent creator, you created man to walk in this creation side by side with you. Through your loving kindness, there was nothing lacking. You, the eternal God, gifted creation to the care of humans. For you are not stingy. You did not manipulate, but you were clear in your commands. Lord, we confess that that we too are like Adam and Eve. We believe that we can control our own destiny. Their rebellion against you and your goodness is ours as well. For we do not obey you and honor you like we should. We do not rely on you as we are called to. Forgive us, merciful Father, for attempting to be the masters of our own destiny, to create a world that, that, would, that would supersede yours. May we no longer rely on our strength, but rest in your promises. Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God. You are faithful to your word and to your own purposes that you will create a new heaven and a new earth, that you have not left us to ourselves but have saved us and will usher us safely into a promised eternal rest in you, where there will be no night, where there will be no death, and, and tears will be wiped away, and righteousness will live. Thank you for that being a part of this day is not up to us, but it is solely and strictly on you. Lord, we also thank you that we are not alone in this world, but you have given us partners to accomplish the work that we've been called to. This morning, we thank you for Saving Grace Church in Milwaukee and for Pastor Brian Winchester. Lord, we are grateful for the work that you have done through revitalizing that church in the last four years. We are thankful for the ministry that is taking place there in Milwaukee. As your word is faithfully preached, we pray for fruit that it would take hold in the hearts of people and that they would demonstrate their faith in you through the works that they participate in. Finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Uh, Lord, we thank you this morning for the recent births that have taken place in this church, for Novali Hildebrand and Josie Bounier. Lord, you have been generous to each of these families and we give you thanks for this gift of life. We pray that both the Hildebrands and the, and the Bouniers would raise these little ones in the fear and admonition of you. Lord, we pray that they would be faithful and that that would be a good picture of your faithfulness, Lord, to their children and to us. We also pray for us that as a church we would love and assist and pray for these families diligently. In the good times and the hard, Lord, that we would be there to honor you as we care for them. And finally, Lord, we pray this morning for the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray that it would uh, warm our hearts and, and stir our affections towards you, Lord, as we keep eternity in our minds. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat and open your Bibles to Revelation 21. When you think of heaven, what do you picture? Is it a cloud with gold gates and St. Peter at the front with a clipboard? Does it have Tom and Jerry in it, for those of you that are older? Everybody who's young is like, who are they? Is it a world where you get to exist in perpetual retirement? doing your favorite hobbies you've always wanted to do? Is it Disneyland? When you picture heaven, what do you picture? This word heaven is a tough one because the Bible uses it in different ways. Often it uses the word to refer to what is up there from the vantage point of someone standing on the earth. In the Hebrew, Shemayim, in the Greek, Uranus. But then the Bible also uses the same word to describe heaven, meaning the place where God is enthroned. It's his dwelling place. It is this 
quote-unquote heaven, to which people usually refer when we talk about the afterlife and going to heaven. Now, the word heaven, as the Bible talks about it, is kind of like our word in the English home, my home, maybe in South Salem, geographically, but it's really wherever Kelly and John and Jaden and Kara are. It's where my church family is. That's my home. As they say, home is where the heart is. Well, similarly, heaven is where God dwells and reigns. Heaven is where God dwells and reigns. And this is why the New Testament authors could make these grandiose statements about us as saints currently alive on earth also being present and simultaneously in heaven. Because as a part of the church, living under the lordship of Christ's word and people, a person is, in a sense, already in heaven. Let that sit for a minute. The fullness of this will not be understood, obviously, until resurrection and complete redemption because we still exist as exiles among a world that is driven by the kingdom of darkness. But heaven, in a sense, has been inaugurated. This understanding of heaven is integral to understanding the Bible because it helps us understand all of God's redemptive activity in developing a covenant people on the earth. This storyline of covenant is in anticipation of the day in which he will finally remove all the effects of sin and restore his creation so that his covenant people might inhabit and rule his creation under his loving reign. I can't wait for that day. How about you? It is in effect to establish what was intended in the Garden of Eden, but this time without the fall and its resulting sin. Heaven then will be known in the fact that God's throne and dwelling place will finally overlap and exist with his creation, his redeemed creation in fullness. This is the eternal heaven that we think of when we think of eternity. And it is this that we will look at over the next three weeks as we finish up Revelation. Praise God, we've moved through most of the judgment into a place where we will still reference it a bit, but we are talking about eternity with the Lord. And this morning is a summary that will be detailed in the following couple of weeks. This is the summary, and then John will break it down into more detail in the coming weeks. Today's text shows Christ's faithful and fulfilled promise of all things made new. That's the summary view. Christ's faithful and fulfilled promise of all things made new. And I believe this will help us understand and reimagine what eternal heaven for the saints looks like as we see the redemptive work of God come to a close. And if our hearts are regenerate, if we are converted people, this should cause us to yearn for that day and be strengthened to face trials now. And I think it will also realign our hearts and minds and lives to exist in this present inaugurated kingdom. We finished last week with the old order and all that are part of it passing away. On judgment day, Christ will judge Satan, his agents, his followers, and even death and Hades and will sentence them to the second death that is unending and eternal. But for the saints, judgment day will be a day of rejoicing and resurrection into our purified new bodies because of the blood-bought redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it will be at that point that we enter our eternal home with the Lord forever and ever. And so John is now given a vision, a grand vision of that eternal blessed state. So let's go ahead and read that vision in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we're introduced to in this vision is a perfected church inhabiting a perfected creation. A perfected church inhabiting a perfected creation. We see this in the first couple of verses there. Remember that the cosmology of the ancient human understanding, the way that they looked at the universe, specifically in the Mediterranean, was that the world was a flat disk that had God's heaven above it and the place of the damned was below it. And as science increased and knowledge of the visible universe grew, we realized this cosmology was wrong. It was misunderstanding the truth. And rather than humble us, though, mankind has confused our ability to see a sliver of the heavens with the ability to know how it all works as if we're omniscient. In reality, what we see if we look into the cosmos, even this week with the Webb telescope, is that the reality of creation is far greater than anything the human mind can comprehend. And it should humble us greatly. And what we must realize is that rather than God being limited to existing in a finite geographic location somewhere out there, he is transcendent over all the cosmos. Who saw the pictures from the Webb telescope this week? Anybody? If not, go look them up. They'll blow your mind. God is transcendent over all the cosmos. He is in and through and at the same time separate and above all of creation. And so the plan of Scripture has never been to have us all go to a far-off spiritual locale where we get to live in eternal retirement. The plan of Scripture has been that God would, in sacrificial love beyond our comprehension, do the work necessary to redeem His glorious creation. The complete and full work of God through Christ was, and is, and will be to redeem the entire creation from the effects of mankind's sin. And so rather than all of the material world disappearing for eternity and us floating on clouds with God with harps, we instead will see what John sees. We will see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. It is in this redeemed creation that any remaining promises of God will be fulfilled. Think with me for a moment. As we look back, we're at the, nearing the end, the very end of the book and as we look back and telescope through all of redemptive history, let's think about the flow of this story. Nick did a great job in the prayer outlining it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he formed all of this for his glory and for mankind's good. And he tasked mankind to be his sub-regents, his sub-kings and queens over all the earth. You guys are familiar with this in Genesis 1. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill thee. What's that word? earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on thee. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all thee and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. So notice what they were given. They were given the earth in which to promote God's good order and God's determination of good and evil. But then Adam and Eve, our first parents, decided that they would instead determine good and evil just like we do every day. And the fall allowed sin into the cosmos, but even then, God immediately visited them with knowledge of his grace, that he would produce offspring from the human race to redeem just, uh, not just one group of people, but people from every nation under heaven. But even then, mankind, the story in Genesis is we rebelled against God, and so God had to narrow his view of redemptive work into one man, a man named Abram or Abraham. And God promised that out of Abraham's seed, the whole world would be blessed. But first, God narrowed the covenant of Abraham in the midst of the pagan world. And in this narrowing, he also narrowed the land promise from the whole earth, the whole world, to a specific land known as Canaan, or what we know as Israel. And Israel was a particularizing of God's grace with Abraham's physical descendants, so that from those physical descendants, the redemption of all things might be achieved by God's Messiah. This was so that the grace of God might again reach into all the nations and cover the entire earth. It went from the earth to a narrowing to once again be expanded in the fullness of the world. Look even at Genesis 22, verses 17 through 18. He, God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The prophets then came and said that that work that would come through the Jewish people would conclude in God's restoration of even the physical nature of creation itself, being redeemed, and it would reach the far corners of the earth. The physical world as we know it would be redeemed. Our earlier reading from Isaiah declared this same new heaven and new earth that would come at the fulfillment of God's redemptive work directly after the judgment of the old order that would pass away. And so the specific land promises of Israel are then widened in scope so that those who are God's new covenant people are no longer just the Jews, but now are all tribes, Jew and Gentile, all tongues, all nations. Look, for example, at how we see this progress. Take Psalm 3711, for example. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. In the Psalms, it was Canaan. But Jesus quotes the exact same thing, but notice what he changes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the what? earth, the narrowing so that it could be expanded again. This is also captured in Paul's statements about who is the true offspring of Abraham. He says clearly in Romans that it's not the biological offspring of Abraham that are his seed, but those that are his offspring by faith. And what is it that the faithful offspring of Abraham will inherit? This is from Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the what? World. World did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Christian groups that are still so focused on the land for Israel, they miss the point of the Bible. It's the whole world that God's people, Jew and Gentile, are to inherit. The plan was always to redeem the cosmos and bring forth a new order in which God's covenant people could dwell. And that new order is made up of two parts, a perfected creation and a perfected people. And so first, in this new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21.1, we see the redemption of creation. From Genesis on, God promised that earth itself, the creation itself, would be the proper place for him, God, to exist with his people as their inheritance. At the fall, this was undone, as was all of the created order. But Paul tells us this about creation, Romans 8.20-22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. At his first coming, Christ's work was to undo that fall and be the perfect Adam, to perfectly obey the Father and take on the burden of all creation upon the cross. And this was not simply to get any singular person into eternal retirement when they die. It was to undo the futility of the fall and restore God's glory over all his creation. And so the new heavens and new earth are not a complete destruction and replacement of the old, but a redemption of the old. The word new that is used here in Revelation 21.1 for a new heaven and a new earth is the word kahinos in the Greek. And it means new as in remade, refreshed, and revitalized. It is in contrast to the Greek word neos, which means new as in completely new. The new heaven and the new earth will be remade, redeemed in perfection. For if God had to annihilate all creation and start over completely, Satan would have been successful in undoing God's good order. But God is in the business of redemption, taking what Satan means for evil and turning it for good. Amen? In other words, this new order of creation that we are promised will be new in quality, not in origin. And this shows us that there is both discontinuity and continuity with the current creation that will last on eternally. In terms of discontinuity, the old order of sin and death will be removed. Amen? Amen. The things that break this world will be removed. Our own internal sin, the sin we do to one another, the sin that exists in the created order. It, we watched last week as it was judged and done away with. And this is also present in the fact that our text in Revelation 21.1 says the sea was no more. Remember what the sea has symbolized throughout the Bible and even in Revelation. The sea is the abode of chaos. It's where the beast and the serpent find their origin. It is where the rebellious nations of the world gather. And so John is not saying here that the renewed heaven will have no large bodies of water. He is saying that chaos will be removed so God's good order can reign. 
Think about that day for a second. Just pause. Imagine a news, a newspaper for that day. Literally blank, except for God is good. No chaos anymore. Can't wait for that day. We rejoice in these changes and this discontinuity from the current creation, that sin, Satan, our own sin, our own fleshly nature, as Seth was talking about, it'll be gone. Praise God for that discontinuity. But we also rejoice in the continuity that will flow from this world to that new one. It is very similar to how the Bible talks about our resurrected bodies. They will be different in that they will no longer be driven by our flesh, but they will be the same in that they will be raised and redeemed imperishable. Imagine Jesus. Jesus came back, and they kind of knew him, they kind of didn't, but he was basically the same. He had his scars, and yet he was raised imperishable. This life is the beginning of that which will reach into eternity. One theologian says this, it is these forests, these fields, these cities, these streets, and these people that will be the scene of redemption. Friends, how you view this idea of eternity will affect how you walk as a Christian now. If you believe that one day we will escape into eternal retirement with a uh, memory clear from everything from this world to do as we please, well, then you will not steward your life as Christ calls you to in the here and now. It is not escape that God is providing. It's redemption. And so many people based on bad theology, when things get tough, they quit, they escape. Because they think that's what eternity is, is escape. But friends, as Christians, Christ calls us not to escape, but to redeem in the midst of the hard things. He calls us to endure in difficulty and work for redemption in the here and now as a picture of what he will do ultimately. For what we do now moves forward into eternity if it is of Christ. For the Christian, death and resurrection into the new heaven and new earth is not something that will be entirely new, but is instead a redemptive completion to what Christ has already begun amidst his people. For Paul is clear that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When things get tough, brothers and sisters, especially in the midst of the church, do you endure and work for redemption or try to escape to comfort? When things get tough in the middle of your parenting or your marriage, do you look for escape? Escape to comfort? Or do you work for redemption? Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this morning, what needs redemption in your life today? What are you trying to escape that the Lord is actually present in? And he's calling you to a bit of suffering so that you can be sanctified and grown into his image. What are you ready to escape but God is trying to redeem? Don't fight against him. He loves you and he's trying to work it out in your life. Perhaps this text can help us adjust our view and how we steward the world and relationships we have now. Well, we see here not only a perfected creation, but also a perfected people, specifically a perfected covenant people of God. Let's read 21.2 again. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. One of my favorite parts of officiating weddings is watching everybody stand and turn and look to the bride, especially the groom. Big, strong men. I always have a handkerchief in my pocket because those big, strong men, the second they see their bride adorned for them, they melt like little babies. <laughs> I am no different. You have never seen a six-foot-ten man cry like when I saw my wife in that first reveal, right? It is a beautiful thing that God has given us as a symbol of how much he loves his church. To understand the beauty and glory being described here, we have to think back to the symbolism this is recalling. You see, Jerusalem was the city where God's temple existed. It was, therefore, the city to which God's covenant people would come if they wanted to and when they wanted to worship and seek God's presence. 
But this didn't last. Jerusalem instead became the seat of idol worship as they performed pagan sacrifices within the city gates. It became the place where the blood of the righteous flowed as they were martyred for standing up against idolatry. It was for this sin that the people were taken into exile and the temple eventually destroyed in 70 AD and the land promise God had given them was voided because they had failed in their covenants to God. And so God's promise to his covenant people throughout the prophets was that he would not leave Jerusalem undone. He would take that voided promise on their part and he would redo it and redeem it. He would redeem the city of peace so that it would be a place where God's covenant people, his bride, could dwell safely in covenant unity with him and worship him for eternity. One of the most beautiful Old Testament prophecies that combines this imagery is in Isaiah 62. Would you turn there with me? Isaiah, kind of in the center of your Bible. If you hit Psalms, you've gone back too far. Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5. Give me an amen if you're there. For Zion's sake, it says, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name. Friends, that's part of where we get the idea of a wife taking on her husband's name. Just like we will take on the Lord's, a bride takes on her bridegroom's name. That the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young woman or a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The marriage imagery here is thick, and we will cover it in great detail next week as we look at the bride in detail. But it's referring to the idea of a covenant people joined in unity to God and to one another in eternal faithfulness. You see, guys, marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, not the other way around. Our marriages are not the highest priority in our life. Our relationship with Christ and his church is. And then our marriages are a microcosm of that. If you struggle with that idea, you've probably idolatrized your marriage. The marriage imagery here is thick, but it is referring to this covenant people. No more will there be idolatry that creeps up among God's people. No more will there be faithlessness among the people of God. This is now the new Jerusalem. And it is also this perfected people that the New Testament writers understood was the ultimate desire of even Abraham. Look at the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. It says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking forward to the new Jerusalem. And the reason for this was not because he was looking forward to a geographic location, a geographic city. He was looking forward to the fullness of covenant relationship with God the Father. And so from the moment Christ appeared, God was beginning the fulfillment of this prophetic promise to his covenant people. He was doing this work of covenant redemption between God and his people and among those people. Seven times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone of New Jerusalem and its temple. And as our hearts are taken by God and turned towards him and we are saved by his grace, we are added to this city, this temple, until the last stone, the last saint, is added to the complete constructed work. Listen to this imagery as it pervades the New Testament. If you want to, you can turn to these. Otherwise, I'll just read them to you. In Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 18 through 20, it says this. For through Jesus, we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, 
You, Christian, in the local church, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Take a look at 1 Peter, or just listen to me as I read it to you. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Sorry, 2 Peter. I was like, that is not the correct verse. There we go. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, he says to the Christian in the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, meaning a covenant people, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The imagery is clear, friends. To be redeemed at heart by God, to be saved, is to be installed as a stone in the temple of God. And it is by your interaction with the other stones in your love for one another, your support for one another, your sacrifice for one another. It is in these things that you worship God. Friends, do you see why I lovingly say so often to you that there are no lone wolf Christians there is no Christian that is not a part of a local body of saints. To worship God is to love his people, to sacrifice for his people, to serve his people. This is why the greatest commands are love God and love his people, love your neighbor. That's referring in context to his people in covenant. In so doing, you serve God and proclaim him as your Lord. Church attendance means nothing. Laying down your life for the people means everything. In the case of someone that has a, re a regenerate heart who finds themselves outside the local church, let's say they've been harmed by an abusive church. Well, friends, if they have a regenerate heart, they will be striving to participate in another healthier local church as soon as possible. This idea that a Christian can sit outside the church for the rest of their life is false. It does not exist. And this desire to be part of the people of God is not something that will suddenly happen sometime down the road. It is the love for the people of God that evidences your renewed heart and assures your place in the New Jerusalem. You'll notice that if the New Jerusalem were just a bunch of scattered stones, well, that's what the temple is today if you go to Israel. This is a temple. The stones are together, working in concert, in covenant. The writer of Hebrews says we are not waiting for our part in that new creation as if it was going to holistically happen one day when we have more time, but rather it began the moment you were saved in Christ. Look at Hebrews 12.22. Notice the tense. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable agents in festal gathering. Friends, how do you participate in that new Jerusalem right now? in your local church, by laying down your life for the people that surround you. For the person that has been saved by Christ, they are a person who realize that it is their regular, consistent, sacrificial love for the Lord's people that is primary evidence of their worship of Christ. Christ is doing this work now amongst his people, preparing and adorning his bride as he sanctifies us, builds us up, challenges us in the midst of suffering, and calls us to lay down our lives for his people. It is through our obedience to the commands to love one another, serve one another, and reconcile with one another when conflict occurs that we are being changed and adorned so that we might one day be presented to God as his bride. It is this imagery of the marriage covenant 
that then leads into the next section where we see the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to his people. The fulfillment of God's covenant promises to his people. Let's read it again in verses 3 and 4. Now that we've seen this perfected creation and this perfected covenant people. Verse 3 in Revelation 21. Go ahead and go back there with me if you're not there. 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The storyline of scripture is that God dwelt in covenant unity with man. Mankind in Adam rebelled and broke that covenant unity. And yet God pursued us in spite of our rebellion and called his people out of Egypt by his grace. And then he promised them that if they could just live within his law, he would stay in covenant unity with them. Here is what God said to them in his covenantal blessing for obedience. He said that if they would live in that covenant, he says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and you will be, I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is the exact language that verse 3 is using. Excuse me, in Revelation 21. But Israel could not stay obedient because their hearts were evil and wicked like all unredeemed humanity. God did not pull away from them, but they pulled away from God. And this is what we do. Rather than reconcile, we pull away and isolate, build cases, and find a reason to no longer be in relationship. But even in the midst of that, look at how God is so gracious. Look at what God's graciousness spoke to the people of Israel. He says in Ezekiel through the prophets, Ezekiel 37, 26 through 28, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Notice who it is who is doing the action. It's God. He is the one who, in spite of our rebellion and sin against him, pursued each one of us in faithfulness. He is the one who called us to himself. He is the one who made us his own. He is the one who took our hearts of flesh and sin and turned them towards himself. God in his sovereign grace. And this wasn't just a promise for Israel that he would do this work. It was also promised to all nations. This is from Zechariah 2, 10 through 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And God would do this by changing his people from all nations, all tribes, all languages from the inside out. By regenerating and converting our hearts to no longer be hearts of sin and rebellion against him. But by initiating a new affection towards God, towards his word, and towards his people. This is from just a little bit earlier in that same passage in Ezekiel. He says, I will give you a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 28. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, and, and, sorry, a stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And so this language of he will be our God and we will be his people, friends, do you see how this is bathed in covenant? This work was initiated in the cross and resurrection. This work spoken of in Ezekiel, prophesied through Jeremiah over and over again in the Old Testament. It was initiated in the cross and resurrection and the enthronement of Christ. For there he poured out his spirit into our hearts and made us new. And friends, this work has already started in those that are his own. Notice that Paul calls us in his writings, the regenerate church today, the temple of the living God. This is an example, 2 Corinthians 6. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And notice what he quotes. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Friends, when we talk about the Holy Spirit being present among his people, we're talking about the initiation of what we see in Revelation 21. It has started. And Revelation 21 is merely the completion of it. 
This is not symbolic to point to something that is ethereal, that has no material nature. It must refer to tangible, practical interaction that we have in the midst of our local expression of the church of Christ. For it is by our love, our covenant love one for another, that we worship Christ. It is by our mutual encouragement and accountability to walk in holiness that we worship Christ. Don't don't confuse yourselves, folks. Going and singing songs and attending a TED Talk at a church is not worship. Never has been, never will be. Worship is participation in the temple of the living God. It is in our laying down our lives for one another that we worship Christ. And so what we have now will not be replaced, but will be made new and enhanced in the new order to come. Friends, if you are not part of God's people now, then the evidence is that you have not been born again. Your heart for or against the love of the church will simply be enhanced in eternity. The perfected creation will be full of the perfected covenant people of God, and it is this idea of covenant that influences our understanding of even verse 4 of our main text. Let's read it again really quickly, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. When it's speaking of the former things, it's speaking of the sin of the old order, the sin within us, the sin surrounding us, the sin in creation. Now, one way to read this, and I would suggest to you that this is the way most people read this, is that the goal of heaven is for me to be happy. That's how most people read this. Won't heaven be great because I will finally be happy? Unfortunately, friends, this is a product of the subversive therapeutic prosperity gospel that underlies much of American evangelicalism, and it misses the point of this entirely. For a proper interpretation, we again need to think back through the redemptive story of the Bible and see that this kind of language is actually pulled from the promises of the prophets to the exiled people of Israel. And they had been exiled because God attempted to live in covenant unity with them, amongst them, and they rebelled and were unfaithful to one another and broke his law and idolatry. And so, as part of the covenant relationship he established with them, they had to then endure the pain of the covenant curses that fell upon them as God gave them over to their sin. This is where the tears, the death, the mourning, the crying, and the pain came from. It is this pain, this mourning, this weeping, this sadness that resulted from covenant unfaithfulness that the prophets said would be wiped away one day. On that day when God acts in sovereign grace to regenerate the hearts of his people in fullness and draw them to himself so that they might dwell with him and one another in covenant loyalty. And one place we saw this was in our earlier reading in Isaiah. Here it is again, Isaiah 65, 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. They prophesied that not every person would be fulfilled in what makes them happy. That was not what they were saying. What they were saying is that they will be fulfilled and happy because they will be with the Lord and with his people. They will be fulfilled in covenant unity with God. And so when we take all of these other things that come from our fleshly nature and our me-centered focus and put them into heaven, we are not reading the Bible correctly. Otherwise, heaven would be a chaotic mess of everyone being Lord over their own eternal state. They prophesied that every person would be fulfilled because they are ultimately united in covenant faithfulness to God and to his people. And so the meaning here in our text is actually another way of saying that in this new order of eternity, this redeemed creation and redeemed covenant people, the covenant union with God and amongst one another will be perfect in unity. Why? Because Christ will be our Lord and we will finally, all of us, submit perfectly to his leadership. Oh, I can't wait for that day. And the people in heaven will be fulfilled perfectly. Because the saints' greatest joy, hopefully our greatest joy, 
is found in covenant unity with and worship of Christ and in covenant unity with one another. Friends, can I ask you, why are you excited about the existence of heaven? Is it because of a false notion that you will get to do and be whatever you have always desired? Is it because of a false notion that heaven will be centered around you and your wants? For friends, these don't describe heaven. That describes hell, where every inhabitant is Lord in their own eyes. The new heaven and the new earth will be where God's presence dwells. His presence will no longer be doubted. It will be palpable and known. In this perfected creation, his people will be intimately united to and in service of him and one another. There will be nothing that divides, divides you from him. There will be nothing that divides us from one another. All of our pettiness will be gone. Does that sound glorious to you? It does to me. God's constant presence as Lord, complete submission of my life to him, deep intimacy and unity with his people. Oh, I can't wait for that day. I would submit to you that you can get a glimpse of what that will be like today. Do you yearn for and find your greatest joy in the midst of God's presence in your life? by his lordship through his word, and as his people hold you accountable to that word? Do you embrace or shy away from his people as we worship together and live life together and search after God together? Your response to his lordship and reign in the midst of his people today, dear friends, will tell you whether your heart is regenerate. If it is not, then I would submit to you to cry out to him to redeem your heart. For many of us in this room, we can taste the blessing of full covenant union with God and his people, and we desire it to come in fullness. And if you're anything like me, there are days where you don't know if you can keep holding on and holding out for that day. But that is where the melodic and awesome voice of our Lord gives us the strength to endure next. And that's what we hear next in Christ's encouraging promises to his imperfect church. We see this blessed union, this beauty of God with his people. All sin and pettiness and brokenness is done away with and perfect unity. But then we, like the first century church, look to God and we say, but God, it's not yet. And we're still so broken. And we still make so many mistakes. And we still have conflict. And people still feel left out and still feel like outsiders. Lord, what do we do? How do we trust this? And notice what he says, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am right now making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is Christ's encouraging promises to his imperfect church. And if you think, how can that last section there be an encouraging promise? We'll get there in a second. As he has throughout Revelation, John follows his vision of sight with something he hears, and this time he hears from the one seated on the throne. Now, to fully understand the weight of what is said, remember back to the beginning of Revelation and realize that this is Christ still speaking primarily to the seven churches of Asia Minor in the first century that were undergoing persecution and martyrdom and fighting against false apostles, false Christians within the church. They were tired, like you and I. They were scared, like you and I. They were overwhelmed with life, like you and I. And so Christ is telling them, guys, the work that is promised in the vision that John just saw, it is coming. And I am already at work amongst you now. You might be existing in the inaugurated and still imperfect kingdom, but the fulfillment of the perfect kingdom is coming. Hold out and endure a bit longer. 
And he is so purposeful in giving them and us assurance of this coming new order that he says to John, make sure that you write this down so it's documented. These words are faithful and they are true. They will come to pass. And the one speaking this is so faithful, dear friends, that he died on a cross for you and for me. He proved his word is true by his actions. We can trust him. God is faithful to his promise, and he's begun the work already and has proven his faithfulness by the death and resurrection of his son and by his providential care and faithfulness to his church over 2,000 years. We can further be assured of this because Jesus, he says, is the providential one, the sovereign one over all creation, over all time, especially the timeline of redemption. For he is the beginning and the end. In the Greek alphabet, he's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And he has the power to bring all of this to completion. He uses a similar phrase here to what he uttered on the cross in it is finished. But the Greek behind it is done, right there in verse 6, is slightly different. Here it is a singular word and it actually means they are done. The promises he has given, the work needed to bring about the redemption described, they are done. We are simply awaiting the final culmination. It's just a matter of time, he's saying. Endure to that time, dear friends. Friends, if you walk away from Revelation with nothing else, many of you are thinking recapitulation. No, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> if you walk away from Revelation with nothing else, endure. The work is already accomplished. We're simply awaiting the culmination. And if you do, Christ says to the church here, you can be assured of three things, two promises about yourself and one promise, an assurance about the false Christian in your midst who is causing havoc in the church. First, he says, to those that are thirsty for communion with God, to those that can say like David in Psalm 42, as the deer pants after the flowing stream, so my soul pants after you, O God. To those of us who feel that same way, to his saints, he says, he will give us water to satiate, satiate our thirst. And this will be given freely without any payment asked. Friends, is that you today? Do you feel thirsty for communion with God and with his people? Do you long for that day of perfection where all sin is done away with? Do you long to dwell in the courts of the Lord in a way where nothing else matters and all else but the presence of the Lord and his people just fades away? You've gotten that glimpse before, haven't you? In those moments of worship, in those moments of communion, in those moments where it's you and the Lord alone in his word, you let everything else fade away and you know that that is what eternity will be like, is that communion. He says he will satiate that thirst. Christ has promised you that that is coming, dear saint. Just endure. Secondly, Christ says to those that conquer that they will inherit his kingdom and riches. But that is not an earthly wealth or material riches. It is the fullness of relationship with him and the people over whom he benevolently rules. Fulfilling his covenant promise to David that his offspring would be God's son, Christ is saying that through his work of redemption, he has adopted all his saints to be his children. And if they endure in fighting the good fight, if they conquer, he will unite them in perfect covenant unity. Now, if we look back at chapters 2 and 3, the churches to whom Revelation was addressed, each was given a promise. If they endured, if they conquered, then God would reward them with eternal life, with a new name, with intimacy with him. And all these promises are fulfilled in this one promise that God will be our father. Verse 7, and he, we, will be his children. What a wonderful thing that all the earthly pains that arise between worldly mothers and fathers and children will be removed and we will finally know the perfect love of a perfect parent in God's unity with us. Can't wait for that day. And these promises seem beautiful and we think, oh no, what are we going to do with verse 8? This does not sound good. But then we read as this third promise that God is actually doing something wonderful for his people. 
God will finally and justly deal with those false Christians that dwelt among the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3, and he will deal with the false Christians that dwell among us today. For this list in verse 8 is not just a list of sinful people in general, but remember that they were in a sense done away with in chapter 20. What remains is this judgment of the church and the false Christians within it. Each of these words within this context of covenant that we've looked at today all speak specifically to those that claim with their mouths to be Christians, but show by their actions that they are not. And each can be tied to those causing problems in the first century church. Would you go back with me and look at a few verses? We're almost done here. Go back to Revelation 2 and 3, and let's very quickly peruse these verses. Revelation 2.2, 2. he says to the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Revelation 2.9, he says to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews, in other words, God's covenant people, and are not, but are instead a synagogue of Satan. Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against you. This is the church at Pergamum. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. In other words, there was no movement for holiness, no accountability for holiness in that church. Take a look at 2.20, the church at Thyatira. 2.20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, somebody in the church who is acting in sinfulness unrepentantly, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. They were allowing idolatry in their midst. Chapter 3, verse 9, this is to the church at Philadelphia. The church of Sardis uh, they knew, God knew their works, but their reputation was alive, but that they were dead. And then in 3.9, he says to the church at Philadelphia, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, say that they are part of God's covenant people and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And then 3.15 and 16, he says to the church at Laodicea, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. In other words, they were useless and useful for nothing. Water that's hot is useful. Water that's cold is useful. He's not saying, I wish that you were cold in your love for me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I wish you were useful, that your works were fruitful, but you're apathetic. Now with this in mind, let's go back to Revelation 21 and look at what's being said there. Christ told us that in our midst, in the current day church, there are both those who are growing in fruitfulness and there are those who are tares, who may look and sound like Christians, but the fruit of their life is missing. And what is the fruit of their life? Well, you could go to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, but I would submit to you that even those non-believers can fake. What is it that a non-believer cannot fake? Love for the body. Sacrifice for the body. And so as we look at this list, this is a list of people in the church who currently are tares amongst the church who will finally be removed, and thus covenant unity will flourish. The cowardly are those who, when difficulty comes, cast aside their commitment to Christ and his people. One commentator calls them those who have claimed to belong to the covenantal church community, but who, driven by fear of humans rather than of God, have compromised their faith. The faithless are those who do not hold strong to their covenant commitment to Christ and his people, but will drop it at a moment's notice. The detestable are those who would live in obvious sin with no concern for bringing evil into the midst of God's people. The murderers are those who, as Jesus called out in the Sermon on the Mount, they're those who hate the brethren in their heart and those who align with the beasts to persecute the saints. The remainder of the list in 21.8 are very much attached to those whose lives look more in line with the world than with Christ. The sexually immoral are any that say that, that following Christ in holiness, that they say they follow Christ in holiness, 
but tolerate or practice that which is against his sexual ethic. The church is full, full of people who do this. This is why we have no voice in the world any longer about what is a sexual ethic. Sorcerers are those who try to manipulate God with their empty prayers and empty worship, trying to make God serve them rather than the other way around. Idolaters are those who say that they have God as Lord, but instead arrange their life around something else and show by their actions that their priority is outside of Christ, his commands, and his people. And liars are those who, with their mouth, state that they love the brethren and are obedient to Christ, but with their lives show a very different picture. They show that they are instead agents of the father of lies and part of his kingdom. In the words of 1 John 4.20 that I read yesterday at our member meeting, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. All of these, Christ promises, will be justly judged and thrown into the same eternal torment of the second death that Satan and his kingdom were given in chapter 20. This warning is not given to the pagan world outside the church, but is a warning for the hypocrites and faithless within the church. God, have mercy on our souls. For they will be excluded from this new creation and will be cast outside the covenant relationship of God with his people. Friends, I pray that that is not me and that that is not you. And if it is, God, have mercy on us. Convert our hearts. This section of text should bring us great conviction, should it not, that our materialistic Western view of heaven is deeply flawed. <laughs> deeply flawed. So many of us believe in this eternal state of happy retirement where we are finally alone, doing whatever we want, answering to no one. And that's not heaven. To separate these promises from the idea of covenant union with God and covenant union with his people is to misunderstand completely what the Bible, what heaven, and what the work of Christ is all about. Friends, if your view of heaven this morning has been broken, and you are a bit sad about that, I love you enough to call you to recognize this conviction and ask you to beg the Lord to change your heart to be one in love with him and with his people. Because for me, for the rest of us in this room who hear the promise of intimate covenant union with God and with his people and long for that day, well, this promise should help us endure in the here and now. And it should cause us to long for that perfected creation inhabited by the perfected church to such a degree that it breathes new meaning and new life into our corporate worship together. It breathes new meaning into our taking of communion as a covenant family. For see, in taking of communion, we are practicing for that great day of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we are one with Christ, and Christ removes all that is of the old order, so that all that is left is his redeemed and perfected creation, his redeemed and perfected people. And this day should help us endure in the present. It should cause us to see the difficulties in church relationships as merely a practice ground for us to grow in covenant unity in anticipation of the renewed creation. It should cause us to rejoice when we see that glimmer in the midst of reconciliation and in the midst of a perfected people, even though we are still imperfect. And so as we look to what we're about to do, as we sing, and as we take communion, let's practice now for eternity and proclaim our mutual faith as we take of communion now. For friends, heaven will be the fulfillment of what, what God has already inaugurated. And so let's practice today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for this thing that you've called us to in worshiping together, in reading your word, in singing songs, in glorying in what you've done, in taking of communion, which shows our common unity in you. Lord, we thank you for these reminders and these symbols. 
They point backward to your cross, but also forward to your perfected creation, where you finish what you've inaugurated in the church, where you finish what you've inaugurated on the cross and resurrection and your enthronement. Jesus, with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our spirit, we cry, come quickly and finish your work. But Lord, we also trust you that you are the perfect Lord and your perfect plan is not something we can adjust. And so in the midst of difficulties and suffering and relational conflict, Lord, we now in this moment beg you to change our hearts to understand and trust you more so that we can see those situations not as something to be flustered by or frustrated with or angry about, but instead to see them as your glorious, gracious sovereignty affecting sanctification in us. Help us to embrace these situations so that we might grow into that bride that is being adorned for you for eternity. Lord, as we sing now, help our hearts to recognize that our worship isn't about worshiping ourselves. It's about worshiping you. So help us to cry out with all that we are in anticipation of that day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.